0: Hello, everyone. My name is Ilya, and I'll be narrating the tale for you today. We bring you the conclusion of Into the Vault. There aren't as many entries as there were last time, but that's the charm. You never know what you'll get when you present the themes. To recap, Into the Vault shows all winners of the themes of this event. Basically, we presented a theme, and folks wrote uh, magical artifacts based on that. The winners of these last two were written by Ledwin, whom you've heard before with his tale of Wildheart, and newcomer, Ida. Ledwin's blog is found at ledwinlemariel.tumblr.com. Mine is found at thebuildingcacophony.tumblr.com, And Ida currently doesn't have a blog, but maybe this will encourage them to create one. I would also like to extend a happy anniversary to Ledwin, as we will be celebrating our first five years of marriage. He's a wonderful husband and author, but that might make me a bit biased. And now we continue with the conclusion of the story, Into the Vaults. Ilya doesn't seem to respond right away as she is thinking. After a few moments, the mage speaks again. Whatever, Mira. i had to put anything in here? She always speaks about her highborn line or something or other. She has one entry she has permitted. It contains an audio file that was included with the artifact. Let me tell you about the Serpent of Venomous Secrets. Long ago, there were two elven women. One was high of birth, and one was low of birth. The one of low birth was known as Alouette Evanblade, an ambitious anarchist who wished to earn the right to become a highborn herself. The one of high birth- Data corruption. Data corruption. Through this highborn woman, Alouette had found herself mingling with the elite of the Kaldori society. It is not outright stated in the records what she actually did as a profession, however-
1: Data corruption.
0: Data corruption. During the War of the Ancients, the Highborn woman immediately realized the danger that the Legion posed. It is said by the statue that she faced the might of the demons firsthand, scarring her mind for life, and robbing her of all her hubris. In a rare act of humility for her kind, she shunned all of her luxury and joined arms with the lower class in the front lines of this hellish conflict. By the time anyone started asking questions, this unknown new addition to the rebellion was so battered and hardened by the battle that she didn't even look like the nobility she stemmed from. They had quietly accepted her in spite of the venom inherent between the social structure. Alouette, on the other hand, refused to give in to her origin. Entranced by the power of the Legion, she sought to understand them. When the war began, she retreated into the depths of her friend's home on the outskirts of the conflict. Here, she began to craft a tool that could be used to translate anything demonic using all her arcane knowledge to sculpt and code a snake golem made of pure opal. At some point, the legion reached the manor in which Alouette resided. Chasing her highborn friend and surviving members of the militia that accompanied her, the demons were hell-bent on eradicating the gorillas that had harassed them so greatly. The militia boarded up the home, but to no avail. Great magics penetrated the walls, and it seemed like all hope was lost. Then, Elowit's work would be put to the test. Watching the destruction that ensued, it learned the patterns of the demonic energies. It could hear the incantations and see the runes of the demonic through the rubble and the smoke. And with it, it learned a counterspell and wreaked havoc on the invaders. It bought just enough time for everyone to escape. Corruption. Data. Corruption. Data. Corruption. Her highborn friend, despite shedding her noble heritage, found herself unable to remain with her fellow night elves, and went into the same path of exile as her highborn brethren. She would not finish the journey, however, instead finding herself living on the eastern coast of Kalimdor for the remainder of her life. All she had left of her once closest friend was the statue she carved. Alouette gave it to her as a gift, as a reminder of her. The two would ultimately find themselves in the same place, just barely shy of 10,000 years later. They would never meet again, but their destination was the same, the Baron's. One was rescued by a strong man, whom she would marry and breed with. She died just a year before the second woman arrived in the same place where the event repeated itself. The same man, the same rescue, the same romance, and death just years after offspring were sired. The statue, a reminder of the friendship between two night elves, remains in the vaults of the man's manor. It would remember the tale of these two women, Alouette Evanblade, the commoner who wanted to become a noble, and the noble who became a commoner. Recording over. The appearance of the statue as dictated by Ida, is: it is a small, pear-white opal statue shaped like a coiled-up cobra, striking upwards. Cobra's jaws are wide open, revealing a single blue jewel where the opening of the throat would be. The statue itself is utterly flawless, with no signs of damage or weathering whatsoever. The current powers that have been recorded are memory, recording, and encoding. The statue can translate and store any demonic or incantation, no matter how complex. To do this, it actively learns the language of anyone who touches it, allowing them to learn of what is stored within. The statue does all of this when the user talks to it, asking it for anything that it might have recorded. Then it can telepathically communicate the translated data to the person in question. It can also record the memories of the one who holds it and retell the tales in exact detail. The statue can also regenerate its opal over time, if it were damaged. It seems to attract the chemicals necessary for this naturally, casting a constant demonic spell that transmutates the elements into the opal necessary to repair itself. Because of this, quiet incantations can be heard from the statue at all times. The statue is not lost and is currently owned by a wealthy family of goblin arms dealers residing on the outskirts of Ratchet. The statue itself is sealed away, deep within a personal vault. I can tell you what's in my personal vault. My brand of f- Remember, no swearing Ilya. Especially when you've taught Aunt Eve a few goblin curse words. He's gonna learn them when he grew older. I'm giving him a step in the right direction.
1: Should I tell
0: Ovi, who has been incessantly looking for you, where you are? I'll be good. There is another artifact that is within our possession but many of them do not realize their potential. Probably keep it as some fancy do relic or some kind of shrine to their wardrobe. You are close, Ilya. I have done several hints to those individuals, but sometimes they do not realize of what I mean. You might need to make it easier to read, Mira. Like, hey, you have an artifact, you dummy. So saying you dummy is a good way to garner attention to one's intentions, Ilya yeah, great way. Do it more often, Mira. People won't respect you more. So, which one are you talking about? It is called Ursel's Bone Figurine. Its history is Ursel granted a small portion of himself to a furball showman, who then gave the artifact to a Kaldori hunter who saved their village. He became their unofficial protector, And later disappeared along with the relic. The artifact itself is a small figurine carved out of bone that was taken from one of Ursel's claws. The carving itself is of a bear with no real other markings that distinguish it from any other such item save for the incredible craftsmanship. When the command word is spoken it summons forth an avatar of the demigod Ursel. The creature is but a fragment of its power, and will only fight on behalf of a hunter that is true of heart, and working on the behalf of forest and nature. The relic itself judges those that try to wear it and activate it. Should it find a hunter worthy, they will feel the embrace of Ursa, and if necessary, the command word will be granted to them. The word spoken again will cause the avatar to disappear. The relic will only be usable for a 30-minute period, and takes a night to recharge. It is currently sitting in a wooden cedar box, owned by one of the scions, who is unknowing of its power, or that it is even magical. There is also a magical recording of the artifact left in its steed, Ilya, I will play it for you now. Mira, if you do that, I'm just going to fall asleep. And then I will wake you with the electrocution protocol called ZAP. You won't do it a second time. I bet. Initializing recording. The Dore woman dashed through the underbrush, taking no note of the branches and brush that was trampled underfoot or in the way. She'd long since stopped caring about trying to remain stealthy, knowing that it would be futile. Sticks and brambles grabbed at her armor, and her skin below, tearing where they could find hold. There was no time to think, and no time to pause. Every burning breath that she took was one that reminded her that she was still alive, and she still had to move. Worn leathers were torn and ripped from the slashing blows of her attackers, both of the monstrous kind, and of the beasts that they'd brought with them. Her deeply tanned, weathered skin was marked with long cuts and jagged tears from where their weapons and teeth had found home. Blood oozed from too many wounds to count, and Marissa Whisperwind knew that if she paused even for a moment, they would be on her. Behind her, the harsh, guttural sound of ogres can be heard as they called out to one another, all of them still on her trail. Mixed in was the howl of their hunting direwolves, hugging creatures that she knew would tear apart if given a chance. It was a testament to her skill and her training that she was even still alive. That, and the sacrifice of Shade, a panther her friend that had been with her these past five years. Tears stung her eyes when she thought back to the sacrifice that the animal had made, when she had been surprised by a small group of ogre scouts. Her left arm hung uselessly at her side, Though she didn't think it was broken, merely dislocated, she'd lost her bow when she tried to bring it up to block an attack of one of the ogres. It'd broken apart like it was kindling, and when the club hit her arm, it was all she could do to stay conscious. It was then that Shade leapt upon the ogre, tearing into the monster's face with claw and tooth. It was not much more of an annoyance for the ogre, though, who'd lost an eye in the savage assault, but had broken the beautiful panther's spine as it threw him against the tree after tearing it away from its face. She would remember the sound of his back breaking for the rest of her life, and then the soft wheeze of the panther life left him, and Shade's eyes glassed over. Focus! She mentally forced herself to push it aside. If she didn't survive, then his sacrifice would have been in vain, and she wouldn't... couldn't allow that. She would allow herself to grieve later, when... if she lived, her sides burned with the effort of continuing to run through the forest, and her eyesight was clouded with black dots. Head swimming, Marissa realized that she was going to need to figure something else out if she was going to get away from these ogres. She looked around as she ran, raising her gaze to the mountainside that loomed to her left. It was then that she thought she saw something, a small overhang of moss and rock, and below it was a hole. Was it a burrow of some kind? The thought ran through her mind, even as she turned to head towards it, though she had no idea how she was going to be able to reach it, or if it was even anything more than a hollow. She knew, though, that her energy was flagging, and even if she had a couple minutes lead on the ogre and wolves, it was long enough for her to rest, and that, more than anything, was what she needed at that moment. She marshaled her reserves, giving everything she had as she ran up to the side of the cliff, and then launched herself upwards, using her right arm to grab a hold of the small outcropping of rocks and pull as one foot caught another jutting stone. Her momentum carried her upwards, even as she scrambled for another handhold. Five feet? Seven feet? Nine? And then finally the entrance. She was inside, crawling, grabbing onto stones, and wiggling like a worm to fit into the tight tunnel. She used her feet to work herself deeper inside, pushing forward even through a sudden rush of claustrophobia with through her. It was too tight! Her mind screamed, even as she continued to push and pull her way in, doing everything she could to fit herself through the narrowing rock. Outside, she could hear the howling of the direwolves, and again the ogre as they grunted and growled, harsh voices carrying up as they tried to figure out how they could get to the cave. The handholds and footholds that she'd use were too small, she knew. For any of those creatures, to even begin the ascent to try and get up and she knew that it was only she was so small that she'd be able to get through that opening. She doubted that even the direwolves would be able to fit onto the rocky outcrop. It was only this deeply into the tunnel that she realized that this was likely a home for snakes. Deadly vipers often liked to have caves like this for their homes because it kept them cool in the summer times and provided a place to mate in the winters. She whispered a soft prayer even as she finally pushed her way through to where the tunnel that she'd been crawling in began to open. Tears streaked her face, both from the effort of getting through and from the pain of having to drag her useless arm upon the rocks and stones. Marissa knew that there'd be at least a trail of blood behind her, and she didn't think that she'd have to worry about her pursuer. If I could just find a place to rest, a place to fix my arm and bind my wounds, I'll be all right. They'll give up, she told herself, trying to boost her own spirits in the situation. She knew that they would give up too, but likely not for a day. It didn't matter. She knew that she needed to get to a cavern or a place where she could at least kneel and fix her dislocated shoulder. The tunnel widened out deeper as she crawled in until she was back on her knees. She dug through a small pouch at her side until she found the small stone that she'd been searching for. Marissa held up the smooth quartz rock, almost ache like in an appearance, and then said, Light. The glowstone suddenly lit with power, radiating outwards and emanating a soft luminescence. A feeling of relief went through her as she turned to look back at the tunnel behind her. She had no idea how she managed to fit through the opening in front of her, but that feeling of relief fled when she noticed just how much blood streaked the rocks and stones. Marissa turned her head to try and look at her arm, but it was almost impossible. She'd need to continue deeper into the cave. It looked like the tunnel continued to slope downwards, but opened further inwards, so on she went. It wasn't long before she was finally able to stand, and up ahead, she could hear the sound of water dripping, which she took as a good sign. The feeling of claustrophobia, which had threatened her earlier, had passed, which she was thankful for, but she knew she wasn't out of trouble yet. First thing first, she thought to herself as she leveraged her shoulder against the stone wall, and then took a very deep breath. One, two, three! With great effort, she slammed against the stone. Her vision swam even as she felt her shoulder pop back into place. Must stay. When she came to and regained her senses, the glowstone still remained lit. The magic of the item wouldn't stop unless the proper command was given. Marissa looked around, clearly confused. Where am I? It took her a moment to recall what had happened, and even more to realize where she was. Grimacing as she turned her head and lifted her arm, it revealed dried blood and an absurd amount of wounds, both from the club and from crawling through the tunnel. Makers. How long have I been unconscious? Reaching down, Marissa picked up the glowstone and then held it aloft like a torch. She looked back the way she came and considered crawling back out, but something made her hesitate. She'd always been naturally inquisitive, and if her parents were to be believed foolhardy and impulsive, she looked down to her left hand, eyes moving to the spot where her pinky finger should have been, but wasn't any longer. Yes, impulsive. She had to admit that to herself. She lost the digit when she was young. Eleven, she remembered, because that was the year she was given her low her pony. A fond smile touched her lips when she thought back to that horse. She wished that she could turn back time to the back riding on that horse, gripping its mane tightly, laughing as the wind blew against her face as they rode through the field of wheat near her parents' farm. A wistful sigh escaped her as she thought about her first pet small whelpling that she'd called Blaze. She should have called him Snapjaw. When she'd reach out to pet him, he'd bitten straight through her pinky, even though she jerked her hand back. By the time her father had gotten her there, he'd swallow it and took to the tree. But she never held it against him. He was just doing what he was made to do. It was instinct, and even through her crying and blubbering, she'd understood that. She resented him for a long time, but eventually, she loved that whelp as much as she would loved Losel, and more importantly, he taught her a very important lesson. Marissa pushed the memory aside and then refocused upon her situation. She only took a moment longer until she started downwards again, continuing along the natural pathway through the mountain. There weren't any more tight spaces, luckily. And by the time the ground had started to even out a little the cavern itself was actually quite comfortable to walk through there was definitely a chill in the air though and she lamented not bringing along a cloak that morning she realized though if she had she may have not been able to get away finally the tunnel opened into a large subterranean catacomb she held up her hand letting the glowstone illuminate as much as it could but she could not see to the other side however She did see another recess not too much farther away and moved towards it. The chamber was filled with stalactites and stalagmites, and it wasn't difficult for her to maneuver through it. As she neared the hollow, she paused. A pile of bones lay there, along with aged leather armor and clothes. Marissa hesitated for only a moment before moving on to the remains and knelt. There was a layer of dust upon all of it, but it was easy enough to gently brush aside. If the designs on the armor were any indication, she guessed it was from a Kaldori, perhaps thousands of years old. She frowned as she murmured aloud. I wonder who you were. The Kaldori woman looked over her shoulder and held aloft the glowstone again as if thinking that someone was sneaking up beside her. But the chamber was quiet and nothing stirred in the shadows. She had the unnerving feeling that someone or something was watching her. A shiver went through her before she turned her attention back to the body and then noticed the glint of silver beneath the bone. Curious, she reached out and carefully withdrew a silver chain. Hanging from the chain, there was a small figurine which looked if it was cut from stone. She took another lingering glance at the body, and then rose to her feet. As she did, her head swam, and she felt as though the entire catacomb was slipping away. Desperately, she tried to steady herself before her vision shifted, and suddenly, she wasn't in the catacombs anymore. She was watching a scene of a group of kaldori and furbolgs. Normally, she might have expected the two groups to be in arms and fighting against one another, but this seemed different. She couldn't hear anything, but she saw a furbolg shaman hand over a necklace to one of the kaldori. He was a hunter with a large bow slung over his shoulder. He bowed deeply, respectfully to the shaman, and then the groups parted, Whatever business they had set out to do, having been done. Then the scene changed, and the nameless Kaldori hunter was in battle. He was firing off arrows just as fast as he could slip an arrow from his quiver and onto to his bowstring. Then, as he used the last of his ammunition, he reached up and grabbed a hold of the necklace with a small carved bone fragment. She could see him yelling, though not what, and then the green wisps of magic escaping from around his hand. From behind him, a large bear materialized out of the ether, seeming to be created from nothing and charging headlong into the monsters that the hunter was facing. It was larger than any bear that she'd ever seen before. The beast charged into the enemy, sending them scattering. It tore through the monsters ferociously, rending them apart as easily as tearing through paper. The giant bear's claws looked as though they were glinting in the sunlight, and Marissa could have sworn that they were metal. The large bear made short work of the monsters and then faded from view as the green wisps of power retreated back around the Kaldori's hand. When he lowered it, the bone carving glowed green for a moment longer and then faded, as did the vision. Marissa had no idea what happened to the hunter, though she realized that he was likely the one that died here in the cave. The bow propped up on the back of the hollow confirmed her suspicions. Whether he crawled his way through the hole that she'd come through which seemed terribly unlikely given the size of the Kaldori, or he'd come another way and perished here from wounds didn't seem to matter. She lifted the necklace, hesitating briefly, and then placed it over her head. A weight settled over her as the bone figurines settled against the skin of her chest. Instead of a chill, though, warmth spread through her, and in her mind came the words that she hadn't recognized, and from a voice that was not her own, but another's. Deeper and bestial, almost growling like a great beast. A bear. Thor Thor Thor, 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 Ulsaldor. Ilya. Ilya. Ilya's eyes opened up to a very cross Ophi as she woke up from her nap. Mira! Ilya called out, but the cross elven girl firmly clamped on Ilya's ear, with Aurora next to her in tow. You can't keep leaving muddy footprints all over the floor, Ophi grumbled. Mira, you traitor, Ilya called out while Ophi continued to march them out of the vault. Perhaps it was wrong to keep Ilya occupied while the two of them arrived, but it was part of the new protocols that Demi had installed. It was upon Ledwin's suggestion after the Ophi protocol. Until we meet again, Ilya called out as the vault door is closed once more. And here we finish off our tale with Ilya getting her just desserts. Or at least some of them, as though if he can be quite the lecture. We applaud all those that give us these stories, so thank you so much for allowing us to read them. Please enjoy the song chosen at the end of the podcast. The details of such will be provided below. If you do enjoy our work, feel free to subscribe to our YouTube section or sign up for the podcast in any one of the links below. Want to submit a story? There's a link down there as well. Let us know how we're doing. We'd love to hear from you. Like always, our time together is short, but with what little time we have, thank you for sharing it with us. Good night. It started like a raindrop raindrop, but it's already covering me. My heart keeps swaying non-stop, non-stop. I guess I gotta swim in the sea. No cry, no care, I'm like the